Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the great privilege it is to be in this place, uh, to have opportunity, technology and so on that enables us to um, uh, stream like we are. We do pray that this time around your word might be a great blessing to us. Please help me speak what is true and faithful. Help us listen with hearts ready to heed all that you have to say. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are starting, as Dave said, a new series. Uh, we call it EV Grow. We do it every three years, uh, as was mentioned, and it's come around again uh, another three years. And in a really strange year, actually, but in an amazing way, an appropriate year. I'll explain that in a second. But here we are again. Every three years, we focus on a fairly mundane thing, the building, the property, uh, the kind of structures around us and so on, and particularly the bills that need to be paid, the mortgage that needs to be paid on the building and the structures and so on. Every three years, we look at that, and we do it every three years. We take a couple of weeks to do it, and uh, it's been our plan every three years to do it, do it well so we don't have to do it again and uh, that's God, God has enabled that to be the case over the past, past period of time so that we've been able to look at it just for that period of time and you'll notice if you've been around church much we just don't talk about property and finances again since then or at least finances around the property um, and that's because people respond each three years so wonderfully and have made it possible for us to cover the costs uh, year in year out and uh, it's been a wonderful blessing to see God's hand at work amongst the generosity of his people year on year. So praise God for that in the history. But we're doing it again now. And uh, particularly if you're here with us for the first time or new in the last little while, this is an opportunity for us to jump in together, as Dave said, and be part of it. But every time we do it, we find ourselves wanting to think bigger than just the property. I find it really hard to spend much time talking about it. It is just a tool. You know, and it's just a building. And we don't ever want to let the, the, the tail, the building, wag the dog. It's, it's just there to help do what we really need to do, the big, important work, which is what we want to focus on. So over the next three weeks, <coughs> excuse me, we will focus on that bigger thing, the, uh, the thing that happens in the building, uh, which is the big question about church. What is church for? What is the purpose of church? What is church about? Now, many are kind of here and you hear that word and in our culture, you can't help but when you hear the word church, think of building. It is a word that's used often with reference to a building. So, you know, I'm going to the church. You know, I'm going to go and clean the church. Uh, you know, people who talk like this are typically thinking about the church as a building. And many people do talk like that. In fact, the origins of the English word church, I'll just tell you the Greek in a second, but the English word actually does have its roots back in house of the Lord, kind of almost a reference to the building particularly. But we want to think together again, is that what the Bible means by church? You know, what is this thing that's happening in the building? Is it all about the building? Well, providentially, uh, the timing is amazing. As I said, we've come to this three-year period of looking at EV Grow and the buildings and so on, right at the time when many people are actually asking this exact question, what is church? Do you remember, we've had church shut down for the last six months and we've been unable to church, or at least I've understood that we've been unable to church. We've been streaming, doing an online thing. And that's led many people to wonder, is that church? Is having 
the events streamed out to your house? Is that experiencing church? And now that restrictions are easing, it's kind of led people to think, well, I'm actually enjoying the stream in my house. Do I have to go back to church? How do I think about church? And people are asking this question for all kinds of reasons, some through uh, health concerns, legitimate health concerns. This virus is real and it has a real impact. And uh, many people are aware of that and concerned for their own health or the health of their family and contacts that they're in close association with and concerned to catch the virus and what it might do for the rest. But there are others who have just entered into a new pattern of life. It might be uh, you've been watching the stream over these last months um, and you've been able to do it in your lounge chair with a cup of coffee in your hand and the mute button in the other hand and, or at least the volume button or something like this and you've been able to do it at a time that suits you through the day. So some, you, you might look at it Saturday, Sunday, afternoon, Monday, whatever and you've gotten into patterns of life where it's uh, working really well for you and you're loving it and you're now finding yourself asking the question, why should I come back? Do I need to come back? Why can't we just continue to do this? All of which feeds into the question, what is church? And do we need property? And how does all of that work together? This is hugely relevant. Now, I've chosen a passage, there are a number of places we could go to, and if you were with us some month or so back when we had our relaunch meetings, I looked through the book of Ephesians, and uh, it's a wonderfully powerful part of the Bible to go through uh, the book of Ephesians, but I've chosen to do something different this morning. So if you want to go back, you can chase that up. Uh, the Ephesians talk, but I want to actually look at the book of Hebrews this time. So grab your Bible. Um, So Nicole read for us uh, a text from Hebrews chapter 12. Now, I've chosen this part of the Bible for a few reasons, because it helps us think about church, but it also connects into what we did the last couple of weeks. And so uh, it's, I think, uh, helpful to keep in that sort of same vein. Here's what I do. I want to do four things. I want to put this passage in context, we're looking at chapter 12, verse 18 to 24. I want to put it in context, always understand the context of a passage. But then I want to convince you of three things. When we look at the passage, I want to convince you of three things. So we'll come to each of those in a moment. Let me put it in context firstly. So if you're with us for the last few weeks, you'll remember some of this, but this book is written to a group of Jewish Christians, particularly Christians who have come from the Jewish religion, Uh, Jewish Christians who attempted to give up the Christian faith and go back to Judaism. And there are a few reasons for this. One was uh, particularly the persecution they were suffering. Now, in that light, the writer writes to encourage them to stick with Jesus, to not go back. And he gives a whole, well, whole number of chapters to deal with that. But he says something very interesting, Come, well, says a number of things that are interesting, but have a look at chapter 10, verse 24. Here's the context for our passage. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, the writer is concerned that these Jewish Christians, Christians continue to meet together for the purpose of spurring one another on towards love and good deeds, especially given that the day of Christ's return is drawing closer. There's an urgency about the writer's concern here. Um, 
But what's interesting for me in this is that there's not just the persecution that's encouraging verse 25, some giving up the habit of meeting together. It seems some are no longer meeting together because the change that the Christian faith has brought is so profound. Let me explain what I mean. You've got a number of well, Jewish people who are used to a temple, going to the temple with sacrifices and priests and rituals. And all of this was necessary to uh, get right with God, that you'd have to go and cleanse your sin, go and cleanse your sin, be established through the priest-sacrifice system at the temple where sacrifices happen again and again. But with the coming of Jesus, a, a, a bomb exploded on the world of religions. It blew apart religions, something that had never been in the history of humankind amongst religions up to that point. With the coming of Jesus, there now no longer was the need for a temple, now no longer the need for priest or sacrifice or ritual. Because Jesus was the fulfilment of all of those things. He was the great high priest who fulfills all the priests of the Old Testament. He was the, he was the sacrifice that they'd been doing. He was the temple even, his own body. And so, and so Jesus brought a way of relating to God, a way of getting into relationship with God, which was utterly new. You come into relationship with God not by going to a place, the temple, and doing sacrifices with a priest. You come into relationship with God by the merits of Jesus who died once for all, whose blood was shed to cover the sins of all. Anyone who comes seeking forgiveness. So that you can now come into the very presence of God by the virtue of the merits of Jesus, forgiven, cleansed, purified. You, you, you don't need to perform or earn your way there. It's the great gift of God in His Son, the Lord Jesus, which does, does away with temples, does away with priest sacrifice rituals you don't need these things anymore and so you can imagine many Jewish Christians brought to the person of Jesus with the profound change that wondering why on earth do we need to meet together my Christian experience is personal and individual I have a personal engagement with the Lord Jesus he's the high priest who brings me into the presence of God why do I need to get together with other Christians personal and individual and the author therefore writes and says verse 24 and 25 don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but continue to meet to spur one another on towards love and good deeds you need each other people need you you need people we need each other to stir each other up towards love and good deeds to persevere in the christian faith following the lord jesus don't imagine you are strong enough without each other. God has given us each other. Continue to gather. Now, there's the context. The likely reality that under persecution, these Jewish Christian believers are falling away, not meeting together anymore. He commands them to meet. And then he gives them this deeper insight, chapter 12, into what God has done for them and who they are. And I want to convince you of three things. Let me give you the first. The first thing I want to convince you of now is that the Christian faith is individual and personal, but it's 
also communal, corporate, gathered. And that's who you are. You are a gathered one. Let me take you through this. Have a look at verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm. Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now just notice immediately that he's contrasting two experiences. He's contrasting the experience of a previous generation who did come to a literal mountain, Mount Zion, Mount Sinai, um, in, uh, in the desert. I'll take you there in a moment. Who came to a literal mountain. And he's contrasting that with the people who have come to the Lord Jesus, who have become Christians, who have also come to a mountain, but it's not a mountain you can touch. He's contrasting these two experiences. And the contrast is really between old covenant religion and Jesus, Christianity. Old covenant religion was by works, by law, by performance, by earning. The covenant in the Old Testament, which was established at Mount Sinai with the giving of the Ten Commandments, was a covenant that said, uh, if you do these things, you will live by them. Leviticus chapter, chapter 18, verse 5. If you keep the law, you will be accepted by God. But no one could. The law just brought condemnation. Because what it showed us was that we fall short, we fall short, we cannot keep the commandments, we cannot do the Ten Commandments. And so there's condemnation and judgment and death. Whereas the New Covenant, and you'll see there in verse 24, that we've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, what did the blood of Abel speak? Abel was a man killed by his brother Cain. And when Abel was killed, uh, shed blood, Cain kills him, blood is shed on the ground. Uh, there's this metaphorical figure of speech that talks of the blood of Abel crying out to God. Now, what did the blood of Abel cry out to God? It cried out for vengeance, justice, pay for this sin. But Jesus dies on a cross. He sheds his blood. And his blood, we, we are told, speaks a better word. What's the word that the blood of Jesus speaks? Forgiveness, mercy, grace. Do not hold their sins against them. I've paid. My blood covers them so that there is forgiveness for any and all who repent and turn to Jesus and put their confidence in him as their Lord and Saviour and, and are established in this new covenant, this new way of relating to God, not on the basis of works and law and obedience and, and um, performance, earning your way, but on the basis of Jesus' performance, on the basis of him having done what needs to be done, having paid the debt that I owe so that I'm forgiven. He's contrasting these two ways. But what I want you to notice is, in contrasting these two ways, there's something that's very much in common between the both. And it's the experience of being assembled. Now, you won't see it there in Hebrews 12, but come back with me to Deuteronomy 4. Have a look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. So again, Nicole read this for us. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Uh, actually, 
gives us an account of that very experience that they had back in the Old Testament when they came to this mountain. And you see it there described for us in verse 10. We're talking 1,300 years before Jesus. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. That's another name for Mount Sinai. It's confusing, but it's the same place. When he said to me, assemble the people before me to hear my words so they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. Assemble the people to hear my words. This is the people of Israel who were in captivity under the Egyptians, under the Pharaoh in Egypt. Um, If you know your uh, event with Moses and the Exodus, then Moses under God, they cried out to God, the great people of Israel, and God used Moses to lead them out of slavery. But he led them out of slavery for a purpose, that they might come to him and be gathered at the mountain gathered at the mountain in the great assembly where God spoke a word to them and taught them to revere him, to be his people. This Old Testament experience was under the law. It was one that was terrifying. It was an experience of sinners without being covered by grace and mercy, just standing before the holy God with all their warts and all, and it was a terrifying experience. But nonetheless, it was an experience of being assembled, gathered. And here's the thing. In the Greek translation of Deuteronomy chapter 4, which we have from early centuries, the word used to translate assemble is the Greek word for church. It's the word ecclesia. You see, in the Greek language, there's a word that just means assemble, gather together. And it's the word ecclesia. And that's the word that we translate into English, church. You see it in the New Testament in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is um, giving a speech before he's actually stoned to death. And in that context, he talks about the great assembly, referencing back to this event. And our New Testament translations, if they were consistent, would say the great ecclesia, oh, the great church. But that confuses everyone because our English word church doesn't just mean assembly anymore. It means all kinds of different things. In fact, let me do a quick survey amongst us. If, uh, how many different ways have you heard the word church used? What does the word church refer to in people's popular thinking? Give us some thoughts. What does the word church refer to? The, the build, a particular building with spires, that's right. It can be a place where you go to meet God, yeah. A denomination, so the Anglican Church, the Catholic Church, the Uniting Church. So it's, the denomination is called the Church, yeah. What else? I've got another one. Can you guess what I'm thinking? It can often be used for a profession. You're entering into the church, you see, to take on a job in the church. So it can often be used for the minister's profession. He's working in the church, you see. Now, there's an English word, the word church, and it's used in a number of different ways, none of which the Bible uses. The Bible doesn't use any of those words for the word church. It just is the word assembly, 
gathering. And in fact, every time our English word church is used in your English versions, the Greek word behind it, except for one reference, is, is the word ecclesia, assembly. But here's the weird thing. There are a couple of occasions, a number of occasions, where the, the assembly, the Greek word ecclesia, is used, but our English translations don't use the word church to translate it, they use the word assembly. And that's because in our English world, the word church actually has begun to be a special word referencing Christians' church. So how can you call this Jewish assembly the church? Because it confuses us all. Uh, there's a reference in Acts chapter 19 that talks about a riot where a bunch of uh, pagans gather together to express their anger and they're, they, it's called the great assembly, an assembly, the ecclesia, the church. But we don't translate it church because that would confuse us all, it's not even Christians. So our word, we'd be better to get rid of the word church. Every time you see the word church, cross it out and say assembly, assembly, gathering. That will help you make sense of what the Bible means by the word church. It just means assembly. You come back with me to Hebrews chapter 12. There was the great assembly. You see, God's purpose was to bring a people and assemble them before himself, to hear him speak and to have them learn to revere him. But look what the author says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. There's something new happened with the coming of Jesus. There is still an assembly, but it's a different kind of assembly. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, Zion was the hill upon which Jerusalem sat. You have come to thousands and thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, to the assembly of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, I think that's a reference to Old Testament saints who put their faith anticipating Jesus, put their faith in the grace of God in Jesus and so are made perfect and join us in this heavenly assembly. We have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you see what the author is saying? You have not come to that Old Testament assembly church, where it was fear and gloom and darkness, where it was all about your works and your performance. You've come to a new assembly, a heavenly assembly, based on the merits of Christ, whose blood has covered us and brought forgiveness. So it's a joyful assembly. With thousands, and get this, the assembly you've come to is in heaven. It's a spiritual assembly. It's an assembly established by the Spirit of Jesus who raises up into the throne room of God himself so that we are now seated with Jesus in the heavens. We have been raised up into a spiritual assembly, an invisible one. You know, uh, last week, Graham uh, wonderfully took us through uh, a text of the Bible and he talked often about blowing your mind moments and he kind of did that thing which I just embarrassed myself if I do it. But um, uh, he talked about blowing your mind. Here's one of those moments. Every person who puts their faith in the Lord Jesus is established in relationship with God, forgiven, nothing more to pay and 
you are raised up into a heavenly assembly where you are seated now by the work of the Holy Spirit of God. You are in heaven now. Though you bodily sit here, you are seated before the throne of grace in Jesus, in heaven. You are gathered to this amazing assembly of thousands of angels in joyful assembly around the firstborn with the Old Testament saints who trusted in the Lord Jesus, anticipating him as well. With every believer across the world, with every believer down through history, we are all there now together. Now that's a blow your mind moment, isn't it? How does that make sense? The Bible says it's true. You are assembled. You are gathered. You know, there's a lot of talk today about personal identity. A lot of people talk about you've got to know who you are and you've got to be who you are. Now, there's dangers and help in that, but here's the thing. Um, You are a child of God, raised into the great assembly in heaven. You are, your identity is child of God, assembled before God, churching. We are churching people. That is our identity. We are gathered now. If you've made a personal response to Christ, you need to make a personal response to Christ. No one can make you do that. No one can do that for you. You aren't born into it. You need to make a personal response to Christ. But if you have, you are a member of the heavenly church, assembled. Your identity is an assembled one. And that is a picture of the spiritual life that we have now. And in anticipation, I might say, of the new creation. That heavenly assembly of which we're all a part, with all Christians down through the centuries, into the Old Testament, that assembly in heaven will be the one assembly that lasts forever into the new creation. There's the first thing. Christianity requires an individual personal response, but it's a corporate one. In essence, it means you are joined together with others who know and love the Lord Jesus. We are gathered corporately in heaven, first point. Second thing, that heavenly assembly is meant to be expressed now physically, visibly. If this is who we are, gathered and assembled spiritually, brought to Christ in heaven, what are we to do with that truth? We're to give expression to it by gathering physically with any and all who know and love the Lord Jesus, whatever their ethnicity, whatever their background, whatever their past, whatever their age, we gather with God's people because that's who we are. That's what church is. It's not the building, it's not a denomination, it's an assembly. To go to church is to go to an assembly. To church is to assemble and to do that physically. If you are a Christian, then you are to be who you are. You know, if you're a mother, if you've uh, at least it's become a mother, first time mother, be a mother. Do the mothering thing. That's who you are now. If you're a husband, if that's who you are now, you've married a woman, be faithful to her. Be a husband. If you're a follower of Christ, You are a raised, assembled one in the heavens. 
Be assembled. Assemble. Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Because the Lord Jesus died to create this assembly. Now you don't go to the assembly, to use the language uh, that I've been raising through here, you don't go to the assembly, you don't go to church to gain salvation. The church is not a temple that you go to to somehow get absolution and have the priest declare forgiveness. That's not what happened. That's gone. That's Old Testament. That's finished with. You don't go to church to become a Christian, to be a Christian. You go to church because you are a Christian. You assemble because you've been assembled. You've been raised by the grace of God through the forgiveness and mercy of Christ's blood. And so we seek now to express the reality of who we are in the heavens by gathering visibly, physically together now. There is something profoundly wrong with a Christian experience that doesn't gather physically. It's a grieving of the Spirit who has given to you, baptise us to be one body. It's a grieving of God and His purposes for us. There is something wrong. Now, I've engaged with this because it has emerged as a real question in the last uh, little while, uh, a question that never dawned on many of us for the last 10 years or so, um, with online streaming. You see, what is online streaming? Is that church? Is it, are we to think that the stream is another way of doing church? Well, only if you think that we can gather electronically and that be sufficient to express the invisible gathering in heaven. And I want to suggest to you, dear friends, is the glorious hope of God's people assembled together to express that eternal assembly truly reflected by sitting in our lounge rooms, each of us watching something on TV? Does it really properly reflect God's great purposes for us? You know, God has made us physical beings. We have a mind, we have a spirit, but we have body. And our bodies are who we are. We are not just a ghost in a machine. We're not just a brain on a stick. This is who we are, physical beings. We'll be raised physically. Now, we can communicate from a distance. We can connect via written letters, via the phone, FaceTime and so on. But that's not in any way the fullest kind of connection that God intends for us. I mean, many of you have got Facebook friends. Are they really friends? I mean, electronic friends on Facebook, truly? Streaming to watch others do church? Is that church? Consider all the things that are meant to happen as we assemble It is the place that we're meant to exercise our gifts, to strengthen each other, to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. You cannot do that in your lounge room, watching others do it. You need to actually get together with God's people. You need to actually physically be in the same place where you can see one another, you can speak to one another, you can um, say things that will be helpful, you can do things that will help. And it's impossible to do that each in our own home, watching a stream. There's the first two things. The Christian identity is being a child of Jesus who is assembled in heaven. That assembly in heaven, that invisible assembly, is to be expressed physically and visibly by us gathering together 
physically. Let me give you the third one very much more quickly. Is a group of people meeting in their home with a few friends properly that expression of the eternal gathering, the spiritual gathering? Is it church to gather with a few friends? Now, there's much more to be said here and we haven't got a lot of time for it, but let me do it quickly and just raise the questions for us. Um, is it church when two or three people get together? Not always. Well, it's always an assembly, but is it the assembly of God? Is it the assembly of Christ? Is it the, a reflection of the heavenly assembly? Well, two or three who get together to have coffee at the shops is not the assembly of God, it's just some friends getting together to have coffee. Um, a dozen people getting together to go and play a sport Christians all together, that's not the assembly of God, that's not church, that's just a group of friends getting together. What makes an assembly the assembly of God? Well, when it gathers around God's Word intentionally to hear from Him and learn to revere Him. That's what makes it the church of God. Can two or three people do that? Yes. And no. Come with me to 1 Corinthians 14. It is true that when two or three people gather intentionally around God's Word to have Him speak through the Scriptures and learn to revere Him and encourage and spur one another on, there's a sense in which that's church because wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with them. There is there's an expression of church, an assembly of God that's happening there. But the New Testament has a slight nuance that we need to bear in mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 23. Look at this. If the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, so on and so forth, if the whole church comes together. What that anticipates is that there's an experience of the Christians in Corinth where it wasn't the whole church. There were gatherings that were of a smaller kind, but they weren't the whole church. And in fact, if you go all the way back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's important to note that Paul writes this letter to the church of God in Corinth, singular, to the church of God in Corinth, to the assembly of God in Corinth, to the gathered ones of God in Corinth, singular. There's only one church in Corinth. There's only one assembly in Corinth. I dare say it was an increasing in size as more and more were added to it. And we have history, we have evidence in history of Houses being, having the walls demolished and spaces made larger and additions added to them to fill in, to enable the size of the assembly to grow and grow and grow. You mustn't think house church back then was just a group of 10 people. But nonetheless, there's one assembly and it's the assembly of the whole church, which may have had experiences of small groups that were meeting in various contexts in smaller houses, let's say. But the New Testament distinguishes between that in some fashion and the whole church. What makes it the whole church and not just a part of the church? I take it the whole church is where there's structured leadership, there's eldership that's expressed with discipline and boundaries and the gifts are brought to bear with a formal shape to them. Church is of a kind in a lounge room but it's when the whole church gets together that God actually encourages the whole experience of edification to occur under the context of duly appointed leadership with the sacraments properly expressed and so on. 
Now, I want to suggest you may still wonder about some of these things and we can talk further, but let me finish. There's much more to be said. But I want to finish on the vision that God has for his work. God's great purpose is to gather a people. Jesus died to gather us, John chapter 11. He died to form a people, Titus chapter 2. His working was to assemble us. And he has achieved that through the merits of Jesus in a, in a spiritual assembly, in a heavenly assembly, which will finally be the long-term assembly we all enjoy. And it's an assembly of all God's people down through the centuries, all across the world. That's who we are. You don't go to the assembly to be a Christian. You go because you have been saved. And because I'm an assembled one, I seek to reflect that and express it in the visible, physical world I live in as often as I can. To assemble with God's people. To spur one another on towards love and good deeds. I am an assembled one. I seek to express that tangibly, visibly in the physical assembly. And last, there's something larger about church than just a few people in a lounge room. As helpful as that can be. So here's my encouragement to you, friends. It's time to get off the lounge chair. It's time to get out of the tracky dacks. Actually, no, leave them on. We don't want you here without them. But uh, come as you are. But it's time now to move forward. Unless you're at risk. There can be legitimate health reasons and so on, which are proper and appropriate. We've always been aware that health sometimes is a, is a barrier to gathering. But for the rest of us, can I urge you to see who you are in Jesus, assembled in the heavenlies? God's purpose is to gather you together physically to express that reality now, that we might spur one another on to love and good deeds. And the building? It's just a building. Keeps the rain off and the sun off and makes it possible for us to gather well, makes it possible for the word to be heard and us to speak to one another as we're able. We need a place for all of this to happen. We've had school halls in the past, community centres in the past, and they make church very hard to do. And can I actually suggest it's like your own home. Um, you could all raise your kids in any old building, couldn't you? But it's nice to have one where it works best where it actually facilitates family life. That's exactly the same here. We need a building. We need one that makes the assembly work well. It makes it possible for us to spur one another on. And praise God we have this. We only have it because God's people down through the years have given sacrificially and generously to provide it for us. And we want to now partner with them into the future, that we can provide it for future generations that we can have a place where God's people can assemble and give expression to the reality of who they are as we seek to stir one another love and good deeds. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the great and extraordinary miracle that you have achieved through the work of Jesus, his death on the cross, that by his blood you have spoken a word, forgiveness, and by that new covenant, you have raised us into the heavenlies. Seated us with Christ at your right hand. 
We thank you that we are assembled there with thousands and thousands of angels in joyful assembly. With the assembly of the firstborn, with the saints made righteous, with all of those in the history past. We thank you for this extraordinary miracle that we are part of. Help us please give visible expression of that week in and week out as we gather physically to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.